With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese, Ryan Marine, and Dan Lloyd. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. We've got John DeGeese and Dan Lloyd joining us as well, fresh off of covering Petit Le Mans over the weekend, Motul Petit Le Mans. We will be talking to them in just a moment. You may have noticed this show is out a little bit later than normal on a Tuesday, and that's because I suspect you've seen the news already. IMSA announcing their new president of the series, and uh, John Doonan stepping into that role, longtime head of the Mazda Motorsports Department in North America, stepping into the president's role, replacing Scott Atherton at uh, the first of the year, and we had the chance to speak to him. He will be our guest on the show, and we figured that was worth waiting a little while for. So looking forward to that conversation a little bit later. We will be, of course, recapping Motul Petit Le Mans. Uh, We'll have plenty of news to get to, and then also we'll close by looking ahead to this weekend with the season finale of the SRO America Championship at Las Vegas. But John and Dan, let's start with Motul Petit Le Mans. A lot to get to here. We'll start in the DPI class where the number 31 Wheeland Engineering Action Express Cadillac was victorious with Pipo Durrani, Felipe Nasser, and Eric Curran. Some misfortune for the sister car drama in the final hour. It really was quite a race. Yeah, I think it was a dominant effort overall by the 31 car. You look at the performance they had from the start of the weekend, um, I think topping the time charts in the majority of the sessions, Felipe Nasser grabbing pole. Um, it, it, it was clear that the Cadillacs had the edge over the Acuras and Mazdas. Um, so when you look at the results, I don't think it's a surprise, but it is a surprise considering where the five car was in the closing hour. Um, a late race yellow um, basically shook the order up put the number five of Al- Philippe Albuquerque out front. Unfortunately, he, he had a, a brake disc rotor, rotor issue. The left, I think the left front brake disc had an issue, ended up um, diving into the pits, actually having an off-course excursion, I believe, then diving into the pits for repairs, ultimately giving the win to, to uh, Pipo Durrani, Philippe Nasser, and Eric Curran. Um, they ended up picking up the Michelin Endurance Cup title as well. But um, not enough for the overall championship with um, Juan Pablo Montoya and Dane Cameron taking that for Acura Team Penske. Well, that was an interesting dynamic of this race. We knew that Montoya and Cameron, they came in with with some uh, cushion into this race and had to finish eighth to clinch the championship. But it had to be nerve-wracking for them seeing the 31, Dan, being as successful as it was throughout the course of the weekend and really putting the pressure on for Montoya and Cameron. I think Montoya had a quote after the race saying this was a little more stressful than we would have liked. Yeah, I think you absolutely nailed it there, Ryan. I mean, you can imagine at several points during the race, the uh, the six crew were, were looking at the timing screens and seeing where they were in comparison to the 31 and thinking, well, we could be in a bit of trouble here. And, and they really shouldn't have been um, throughout the race. Such was their championship lead heading into the event. Um, but it, it was a case of perfect execution from the 31 crew throughout. And, and the six ended up doing what it had to do. But for for several stages of the race we didn't really know if if it would be able to make that eighth place that it so needed and you know it was maybe one one errant pit stop or or one one off track moment away from dropping out of of that position and potentially losing the championship so it was it was actually a really exciting conclusion to the season 
um, despite the big 12-point swing. Um, the 31 crew did everything they could, but unfortunately for them, it didn't quite work out. Um, however, as John said, wrapping up the Endurance Cup title, I think that will uh, that will play nicely with them and, and getting the end-of-season race win at one of the big Endurance Classics will uh, probably probably make things, uh, smoothen things out a little bit and won't make losing the title seem so bad after all. And what do you make of this for Accurate Team Penske? They, they entered the WeatherTech Championship a year ago with a lot of press and a lot of expectations. I think especially from the outside, the, those within the team kind of downplayed it, noting the level of competition within the series. But I think there was an expectation because this was Penske that they would be contending for championships right away. And as we saw in year one, that really wasn't the case. But in year two, it's been a different story. And this Montoya-Cameron combination has proved to be very potent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there were a lot of different factors, like you said, Ryan, that came into play. Um, personally, you know, I was a bit surprised that they weren't fighting for the championship last year. But when you think the Acura ARX-05 was a brand new car that year, they were the first, you know, maybe latecomers, you'd say, to DPI after, you know, full season under the belts for the Cadillac, Mazda and Nissan programs. And so they still had a little bit catching up to do. Also, I think Penske had some learning to do with with sports car racing or relearning, per se. You know, uh, there were some errors in pit lane, errors in strategy. And and I think this year it all sort of came together. Um, We saw some struggles at Daytona and Sebring for for the team. But from that point forward, I I think we saw the level of consistency for especially the number six car of Montoya and Cameron um, really play out. And I, I think... Um, their finish on on Saturday, I think their fourth place finish, I think that was their first non-podium since Sebring. So that says a whole lot about what really won them the title. Sure, they had wins along the way, and there was some BOP controversy at times, but I, I think that it, that shouldn't take anything out from what they achieved and, and really how the program moved a huge step forward in, in, this, in 2019. And it's really an interesting extra feather in the cap, I think, for Juan Montoya in his uh, pretty unique career in this day and age. You don't see drivers branching out and participating in so many different forms of the sport like you did in the old days. Montoya is really the exception there. He's won races in IndyCars, in Formula One, in sports cars, of course, in NASCAR even, uh, Indy 500 win, Monaco win. Um, He's been successful in everything he's done, and now he adds an IMSA championship to that list of accomplishments. And he's kind of carved out a unique niche for himself, I have to say, in uh, modern motorsports. Yeah, and believe it or not, I think this is his first championship title since his kart title in 99. So it's been 20 years since he's actually won a season-long championship. You mentioned all those one-off wins. Not one-offs, because obviously he's racing in in the full-season championships there, but... Um, I think he was quite excited to be a crowned uh, a champion again in, in, in all in all that regard too as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's uh, quickly touch on LMP2. This was a disappointing season, I think, for the class in general, just because the car counts really weren't there. And this final race of the year maybe summed it up. It encapsulated all the struggles that the series has had attracting LMP2 entries and something we feared might happen all season long. Finally, did with neither car making it to the finish. Yeah, this is the first time in modern IMSA history, from what I can gather, that um, a class didn't actually have a finisher um, with both the PR1 Matheson and Performance Tech Oricas dropping out of the race. Um, First, it was Cameron Castles with a pretty big accident at the S's, I think in the third hour, and then suspension um, failure for the 52 car 
um, that um, had locked up the title, um, the, the overall season-long title with Matt McMurray, by just starting the race. Um, they ended up calling it quits just prior to halfway with the suspension damage. So um, really unfortunate. I, I think, you know, looking back now, it is kind of a surprise this didn't happen earlier in the year because there's only two cars. But nonetheless, it was still a bit of a low point um, for this category. Good news is there's more cars on the way, and we'll be talking about that later in the show. But I think, um, you know, from a championship perspective, PR1 Matheson takes the championship with Matt McMurray who was the season-long co-driver. He had a bunch of different drivers um, sharing the wheel of that Orica with him throughout the year. Michelin Endurance Cup, as it's known now, uh, goes to uh, Performance Tech with Cameron Castles. So kind of a, a good way to sort of end the season for both those teams that had really soldiered through um, what was a defi- definitely a challenging year in, in LMP2. Well, switching gears then and moving to the GT classes, we'll start with <laughs> GT Le Mans, where first of all, we were just excited to see the Risi Competizione Ferrari back on the grid for the first time since Daytona in the WeatherTech Championship. And Dan, they came back with, uh, with a bang, that's for sure. They made sure everyone knew that they were there. A big win for the Ferrari team with James Collado, Pierre, uh, Alessandro Pierre Guidi, and Daniel Serra. First win for the team in three years. Kind of hard to believe in the WeatherTech Championship. Absolutely. Yeah. There, were, there were so many, even at the start of the weekend, there were so many sort of smiley faces around the Rizzi Competizione garage. And right from the start, they were, they, they were on it in the top three, top top four times in GTLM um, against all of the full season front runners. And, and uh, I think a lot of people were pleased to see the Ferrari back in the class. Um, and in, in the race, it ended up leading a, a large portion of it. And it actually turned out to be, uh, I think it was James Collado afterwards, he said that it was it was real life Ford versus Ferrari. I know we've got a movie of uh, the same name coming out but uh, very soon, but it, was, it really was playing out like that, a modern version on track at Road Atlanta. Um, in, in the end, it came down to Pierre Guidi overtaking Richard Westbrook as, as night began to fall. Nice little move into turn 10, classic braking maneuver. Um, and But it had been much like that throughout the race. The, the, the chase between the two cars was, was pretty ecstatic and was pretty exciting to watch. Um, and then in the end, it was Collado who brought the car home after defending hard from Ryan Briscoe after that uh, that yellow. So, um, yeah, huge smiles at Ricci Competizione before and after the race. Um, they were beaming. I think hopefully that will give the team some confidence to be back next season. Um, obviously, they, they've they've proven they can win even against one of the toughest GTLM, GTE fields uh, in, in, in the class's history. Um, so, yeah, hope, here's hoping that we'll see more of the Ferrari on track next year. Couldn't agree more. Certainly, it's uh, not quite the same without that that red Ferrari Fabrizi on the grid. So, good to see them back. Good to see them having some success. One of our themes, I think, this weekend was championship winners glad that they had a bit of a cushion and didn't have to sweat it out too much at the end. That was certainly true in DPI. It was true in GTLM as well, where Earl Bamber and Lawrence Vanthor had the championship, but uh, it wasn't necessarily the cleanest finish to the race on that final lap for them. No, no, it was it was it was scrappy, and and as you said, the Porsche having a little off track moment at the end. It was it was uh, quite uncharacteristic of the uh, the core run 
Porsches from what we've seen earlier in the year. You know, those those win streaks in the middle of the season, they were they were just dominant and and really imperious the way they went about their racing. And uh, it, it it didn't it didn't fall apart at Road Atlanta. They'd done enough to clinch all of the full season championships available, but they they certainly made made hard work of the race itself. And and I think one of the drivers said afterwards, you know, I, I sort of wish that was one of the normal two hour forty races because it was a it was a bit of a brutal slog for them. But um, no, they 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 came through in fifth and six got the points got enough um to to get them over the line um it, it was a bit of a shame not to see those those beautiful coke porsches up up at the front of the uh of the front up at the front of the class uh, on their outing with the special livery but um nonetheless porsche certainly brought some flair to the race with that uh, brilliant sponsorship idea and, and a lot of people uh, getting behind it so uh, i think you know overall that was great for the championship and you might have seen as well ryan lately nick tandy who's a, yes. a lifelong oval fan took the 911 rsr out um did one of the longest burnouts i've ever seen <laughs> as he left the pits at talladega in front of the nascar crowd and uh, yeah that just sort of uh, caps everything we everything we've enjoyed about that car which is being replaced by a new model next year yeah it was really cool to see and to, to see the the fan reaction as well at talladega not sure that a lot of those fans knew exactly what it was they were watching <laughs> but uh, i saw a couple of videos taken by fans in the stands and it seemed to be really well received so that was really cool but back to petit lemar uh, the number 67 ford finished second the number 25 bmw finished third, and Corvette finished the season without a win. That is hard to fathom. As successful as this program has been in the final year of the C7R, not to see a Corvette victory at any point uh, throughout the GTLM season, that's mind-boggling to me. Yeah, absolutely. And and for such a for such a loud car, it did go out in quite a quiet way at Road Atlanta. The uh, saying goodbye to the C7R, quite quite a difficult thing. But personally, it's... it's uh, a favourite, the that iconic front-engined uh, setup and the the rumble that you that you can just instantly recognise if you're standing trackside. But um, yeah, it, it's it's been a it's been an unusual year for Corvette. I think they'll want to regroup and uh, see what they can do with the new car. But it's a chance to refresh. Uh, the CAR turned some uh, some laps at well, turned a, a demonstration lap at Road Atlanta before the race. Tommy Milner going at a fair wick. Um, so the car's clearly clearly got some capabilities in it, and uh, yeah, I think we're we're all looking forward to seeing what the new chapter has for Corvette, and I think Corvette will be as well. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll see them at the on the top step of the podium at some point in the near future again. Moving then to the final class, GT Daytona, high drama in that class as well with Bill Oberlin tracking down Felipe Fraga late in that race. Ultimately, Oberlin picking up his record-matching 60th win in IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship or uh, Associated Championship competition, doing so on his birthday. What a dramatic finish for the Turner BMW team. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was just a, a, a brilliant classic GTD finish. And I'll, I'll let you in a little bit of an indus- journalism industry secret here, Ryan. <laughs> I, I do try to to pre-write some of the uh, some of the race reports before the end if it's perhaps a race that hasn't produced too much drama but my goodness the GTD report I, I didn't start until maybe 10 minutes after the race it was just the to, to fathom what went on in the final lap was it was a bit too much um, but Orbelin yeah he was absolutely fantastic in that um, final hunt of Felipe Fraga and really that that 
full course caution while it sort of di- disrupted things up in dpi um in gtd it really created something because um the the mercedes and, and even the bmw i think they said at the end um they were definitely tight on their fuel because the the mercedes pitted with uh, 65 minutes to go and when you consider a, a green flag gtd stint is probably just a shade under an hour they were really fine and they probably would have needed a splash a, a couple of laps from the end but the caution enabled fraga to to go for it um, but I think at the end, the 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 dogged defence he had to put up probably uh, probably did, did a bit too much to to his Mercedes, and he ended up uh, going off track a little bit, and then running out of fuel. Orblin went on to take the win, um, and as I'm sure you're aware, Ryan, 60 wins for him now. Um, the BMW stalwart, he's now tied with Scott Pruitt for IMSA race wins, and uh, if and that's that's just uh, proof of such a great career he's had. But yeah, with Robbie Foley and Dylan McIvern, that turn of BMW was on fire all weekend, so uh, I think a deserving winner there. It was awesome to see Bill's exuberant uh, reaction to the win after the race. A guy who's won 60 times now, and you would have thought it was his first, as excited as he was. It was really cool to see. Multiplast by Land ultimately finishes in second in GTD. They had to recover from a penalty earlier in the race uh, where they dropped a lap in order to do that. So well done by that team. And then Faf really camping off a, a remarkable debut season in the WeatherTech Championship to finish in third. I think that's a team that opened a lot of eyes as the season went along. And then going back to our theme of championship winners that were happy to have uh, a big cushion going into the race, Trent Hidman and Mario Farnbacher, they do win the GTD Drivers' Championship, but they do it in, in the fashion that I'm sure they're not all that thrilled about, ultimately dropping out of the race early um, and having to fall back on the, the points margin that they were able to build over the course of the season to clinch the title. Yeah, of course. As you said, Ryan, they they weren't running at the finish. Only completed just a, just shy of uh, half the race, um, and and ultimately, I'm, I'm sure they would have been a bit disappointed with that because of where it put uh, where it put them in in the battle between Acura and Lamborghini for the GTD manufacturer's title, uh, which ultimately went to Lamborghini by 1.2 seconds. Um, can't get much closer than that. Um, so yeah, I think him and Farnbacker and and with Justin Marks as well, their endurance co-driver. I think they, they probably would have really wanted to be a part of that battle, perhaps um, changing the swing of things and giving, giving Acura a shot at the crown. But um, yeah, a bit of a, bit of a disappointing end to it, but they can be, they can have absolutely no complaints um, about what they've done earlier in the season, a really remarkable run. Um, and for Mike Shank as well, it's, I think this is his first ever championship, which to me is just ridiculous, and I'm sure to others <laughs> is as well. But he, he finally got there, and it, the, the the relief on that team was was uh, so great at the end. And 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 just I think the, the the form that those guys had during the season, the results, they sort of deserved to perhaps have an off day at, at the end there because um, yeah, they've just been fantastic all season. Well, that's just a glimpse at what happened. It was a very dramatic race. We've got full coverage available at sportscar365.com. John, let's let's look back on the event and maybe even the season as a whole to some degree. We'll have more time to really dive deep into the season in review when we get to our year in review episodes. But looking at this event in Petite, thinking back on the WeatherTech Championship in 2019, what are some of your standout thoughts? Well, there was a lot of parody in the results in DPI in the first year of them sort of being let loose with the Cadillac. Acura and Mazda all having three wins apiece heading into this weekend. Obviously, it ended up being with Cadillac with the most wins of the season, but Acura with the title. And I think a lot of that comes down to how 
the BOP sort of unfolded in 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 the in the series. You know, there was a lot of controversy. I think mid year, um, but by the time we got to Petite, we saw things a little bit uh, swayed towards the Cadillacs. Um, maybe the Mazda played a factor in the race, which was great to see. Um, Acura maybe didn't have the ultimate pace they they did earlier in the season, but I, I'm I was personally excited to sort of see those season long battles and. Um, you know, the, the overall fight for the championship, you know, it, it obviously came down to the wire. Um, we maybe could have been a little closer had there been maybe a little bit closer fights in earlier in the year, but what we saw in, in DPI was definitely a, a well-deserving title to accurate team Penske and, and Juan Pablo and, and Dane, who becomes a three-time IMSA champion. And all those titles came through the WeatherTech champion championship era post-merger. So he becomes the most successful driver in championship form in 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 the uh, imsa in post-merger imsa history and and looking at the other classes um dan summed up uh, uh summed them up really well in in terms of gtlm and gtd and uh, a great battle uh, to the end in gtd as we normally would expect and and in gtlm you know i was personally sort of sad to see the the fords in, in their final race not being able to, to take the win but it was a great jubilation for for Risi competizione the um, to end up winning their first race in quite some time. Um, great stuff there. But it was definitely a moment for me as I saw Ryan Briscoe climb out of the Ford GT for the final time um, after giving it his all, you know, to, to try to, to close in on the win there um, at, at the, in the closing stages of the race. And that just sort of shows you the emotion that drives through all of these these teams and drivers and, and, and manufacturers and everybody involved in IMSA. I, I think this made it for a, a very memorable season on a, on a number of levels. Um, what about you, Dan? This was your first time at Petit Le Mans. Obviously, um, lots to take in. What were some of your um, feelings from the weekend? Yeah, it was just a, just a real, real positive weekend. I think you know, and, and end of a season, a lot of reason to celebrate and a lot of reason to look back on certain programs. As mentioned the Corvette, the, uh, the Ford, and and the Porsche 911 RSR as well. Um, coming coming to an end for this for this championship at least um it it, it was just such a fantastic event I, I rarely do i sort of get a chance to have a proper walk around a circuit but i i did i made made a point of doing this at road atlanta because i wanted to see just how the the, the on-track product and how the the activation that imsa and the manufacturers have have pushed for is translating into numbers on numbers in the stands numbers on 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 the banks and and it was just fantastic that the banks down at the bottom of the s's were completely full and all around the circuit there were at least two deep and people camping by the side of the track and and bear in mind this was on a, a local rivalry college football weekend with talladega uh nascar going on as well um, and they still pulled in a capacity crowd and and one thing that really stood out to me personally was looking looking down on the grid at the start uh, bef- before the race when all, with all of the fans walking around in front of the cars it was so just a sea of people there and and you know that's that's the sign of a world class event i really did feel like i was a part of a world class event and uh, yeah it was it was a, a perfect way i think to cap the season and uh, yeah looking forward to the next one daytona is not far away no it is not uh, that's a good way to close things out here in our recap section of the show obviously there's a lot more to be said Only have so much time to do it here, though, on Double Stand. So if you would like more coverage, make sure you head to sportscar365.com. A lot more reaction to everything that took place at Motul Petit Le Mans in 2019. Up next, though, on the show, we'll turn our attention to the news of the week. That's next on Double Stand. (laughs) 
Hello guys, I'm Alessandro Balzan and you are listening to Sportscast 365 Double Stain Podcast. Ciao! Back on Double Stint, let's dive into some news here, John, and biggest news story for sure is the one that came out earlier today as we're recording this. The replacement, uh, that doesn't even sound like the right term, the the new IMSA president who will be taking over for Scott Atherton at the end of the year, John Doonan, officially announced by IMSA, has big shoes to fill, no doubt about it, but as we were racking our brains trying to think about who might be the the ideal replacement for Scott Atherton, given all he was able to accomplish. We never got to this as a potential option, probably because he's so ingrained with Mazda and has been for so long. But thinking about it with some hindsight now, this does seem like a pretty sensible choice. I 100% agree with you, Ryan. You know, I, the first couple of days after Scott's announcement of his retirement, you know, you quickly look at who's the most logical successor. And nobody stood out within the existing IMSA executive team and so then you start looking at well where else you have to look from outside and it quickly became apparent as i was digging around that they were working on somebody from the outside and you know common logic would initially suspect that it would be somebody from the nascar family it makes a lot of sense you know from a business standpoint there because there's a lot of sharing between the two organizations and 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 whatnot but when it became apparent that john would be taking the role it made absolute sense to me, 100%. Um, you don't have somebody that's more passionate about the sport in the paddock. Um, the knowledge, the the dedication he's had, he's highly regarded as probably one of the, one of the most passionate and well-respected motorsport executives in sports car racing. And he's been there, you know, for over a decade. Um, joining Mazda, I think, back in 2005 for for the first time in the, in a motorsports capacity. Um, leading the the manufacturer to multiple championships in grassroots racing and, and um, helping support all the open wheel Mazda Road to Indy um, uh, ladder system, and now most recently in prototype racing, and they finally broke through this year with the with three wins with the RT twenty four P factory Mazda Team Yost effort, and then we have the expansion to TCR next year with Mazda and returning to the what is now known as the Pilot Challenge, you know. And I think a lot of Mazda's success could be attributed to what John has done and his perseverance inside that company. And with that kind of drive and determination and this like never give up kind of attitude that it, that has embodied him and Mazda, you know, I, I think that having John lead IMSA into this next era is is a no brainer. Um, it's really exciting. I, I think um, I think we're going to be in for a, a great future with this championship with somebody who really gets sports car racing who lives it who's passionate about it and who can really um step up and and fill the quite big shoes that um scott is is leaving behind i'm not sure there was another name that could have been put forward where it would have been met as universally with oh okay that makes sense you know that that kind of outlook on this i'm not sure that there there is anybody who who could have done that especially considering how well-respected Scott Atherton has been in this role for so long. I think, too, that coming from the manufacturer, this this is a, a benefit for the series moving forward because so much of the role that he'll be stepping into is, it, it, I mean, it, it comes down to relationships with manufacturers, trying to cultivate those relationships, bring manufacturers into the fold, and he can speak 
with a great degree of experience and understanding of what the manufacturers are going through. I think that really is going to be an asset for this championship moving into the future. Especially with DPI 2022 on the horizon, because Scott's leaving at a very critical time in this discussions, the finalization of the regulations. Okay, we should have the regs finalized by the end of the year. So I think Scott will be, you know, rubber stamping it himself. But the next step is getting manufacturers to commit. And I think this is where John's first real role will be in, in terms of, you know, getting new manufacturers into the into sports car racing's top class in, Amer- in North America, potentially brokering a deal with the ACO to try to um, allow this class to be embraced on a global basis. We've been getting closer and closer to that prospect there. Um, I think we're going to be talking about that a little bit later, I think in the next uh, uh, news bit. But um, yeah, there's a lot on John's shoulders for sure. But considering the pressure he was obviously under for all these years with the Mazda program, I'm sure that he can take, um, he's up for the challenge here in in leading IMSA um, um, into the into the future. Well, the, the other element of this is it's hard to imagine Mazda without John Doonan being a big part of it. And uh, I really feel like he's been a champion for motorsports within Mazda, specifically in North America. But I think that extends to the home office in Japan as well. And whoever steps into that role, speaking of giant shoes to fill, they, they don't get a whole lot bigger. And uh, I, I, you kind of wonder what, what the impact on Mazda is going to be. It seems like racing and sports car racing in particular is just part of the DNA of the company. So I don't expect to see any kind of major changes moving forward. But it, it is going to be different. That's There's no doubt. Um, Mazda without, uh, without John Doonan at the helm. Well, you mentioned it earlier, John, just a moment ago, the the potential for some convergence of DPI 2022 and hypercar regulations. There is, it seems, on both sides of the Atlantic, a desire to have these two platforms, really the, the prototype platforms of the future, be able to race together in some capacity. Now, the desire to do it and being able to actually realize that desire are two completely different things, but this has been brewing for a little while. We've been talking about it at least since Sebring, if not before, on a hypothetical basis. Where do we stand at the moment in terms of where the discussions are and what the likelihood might be of seeing some ability of these two platforms to race together to somewhere down the line? It seems that talks are definitely accelerating, and I can't pin it on anything particular. There's a lot of movement going on going on behind the scenes. Um, for instance, Gerard, Gerard Naveau, the WEC um, CEO, was here this past weekend. Officially, he was there to you know pay tribute to Scott in his final race. Um, but I asked Gerard, you know, well, obviously you must be here for meetings about DPI. He says no, because Pierre Fion was not there with them. So he said that uh, allegedly they were not there to meet. But I, I would believe that there had to be some discussions over the course of Saturday in, into Sunday. Um, there might be even more meetings later this week with between Gerard. I know he had a quick trip to Miami to make in between. So, um I think this is getting down the crunch time for the WEC right now. We have two manufacturers at best for hypercar next year. And at best meaning Aston Martin, there's a lot of questions over whether that program will be ready for September, 2020. Um, there were rumors in the paddock this past weekend that the program may have been completely canceled. Um, I've gotten confirmation. That's not the case. Um, thankfully, but it does seem to be very, very rocky at this point. 
Um, I'd be surprised if we see Aston on the grid by September 2020. It may be a delayed start for that program. Um, I know the ACO has been working very hard to try to find other manufacturers to commit. They've made trips to um, various countries in, in Europe in recent weeks to try to convince the, the, the heads of the board to, to commit to a hypercar program. Instead, those manufacturers are going back to them saying, we want DPI. We want a global platform that can compete for wins overall at Le Mans and Daytona and Sebring and Petit Le Mans. And that's the reaction that the ACO is getting in return. Um, I know there's some people within the ACO that are hopeful, that are optimistic that something can be done to allow DPIs as the, you know, integrated with hypercar into the top class. There's even been talks of a, a, a new class name. I've heard the rumor of LMPI. So sort of giving credence to DPI and what LMP is with what the prototype hypercar class will be. Um, that's unconfirmed, but nonetheless, I, I, I really think we're at this critical stage where in the next month we need to have some news over what's going to happen because if the WEC continues down its path it's in with no immediate hypercar manufacturers in addition to Toyota and Aston Martin, I don't think it's sustainable. I think you need at least four manufacturers in a platform to make it a success. And if you announce it early enough, you confirm it early enough that there's DPI 2.0 is eligible alongside hypercar and potentially vice versa, that hypercars could potentially race at Daytona and Sebring or, or whatnot. You could, you know, you could obviously probably see Toyota wanting to do that, maybe even Aston Martin to go fight for a win, maybe on a one-off there. I think you'd ought of all of a sudden will have at least two or three manufacturers step up and immediately commit to it. Um, I'm talking about Ford, Lamborghini, potentially Porsche. Um, those are the manufacturers that are integrated right now in DPI 2.0 discussions. Um, actually, Porsche officially says they're no longer in the discussions, but I know they're still keeping a close eye on it. If we get some kind of confirmation in the coming weeks or months, I think you're going to see the floodgates open. And um, I think it would be better for sports car racing as a whole. I, I don't think that it would make any sense for DPI not to be part of the ACO's top class. I think we've been talking about this for years on this show, that if somehow there could be a rules convergence where we would see a global set of regulations that would allow you to race at Le Mans, at Daytona, at Sebring, across these massive championships and that that extends to european le mans series and asian le mans series to some degree if you could see that convergence that would be the the that's the one thing that seems to be missing with sports car racing right now it does seem to be on a resurgence generally and it's very strong in its respective pockets but if you want to make it something that that works on a global level you you need to have that crossover ability and and we're so close it's tantalizing it's awesome that they're talking about it you just have to hope that that everyone can put their heads together and find a solution it's not going to be easy to do but man it would be amazing if we could see that actually come to fruition i, I don't know how how confident are you are i'm i'm sitting on pins and needles just thinking about it but i just i know there's a lot of hurdles that need to be cleared yeah, there's technical hurdles and then political hurdles as well. And on the technical side, one of the things that I've been made aware of is something kind of so rudimentary but important, and it's the fuel tank capacities of the LMP2-based DPI cars. 
So DPI 2.0 is looking like it's headed down the path of using the existing chassis for the next generation and outfitting them with a, with a, a rear real rear wheel driven hybrid system well those chassis only have a certain size fuel tank there's no way to add additional capacity into that unless you change chassis altogether and i know a couple of the manufacturers are in favor of a new chassis design but some of the other dpi manufacturers are not and i don't believe a decision has been made i know the direction has been made of retaining the chassis that's imsa's philosophy but if you know, for instance, you keep the same chassis, that means 10 lap stints at Lama. The ACO has always outlined they want 14, maybe potentially 15 lap stints at Lama for its top class. And the hypercar regulations are equipped for that. So that's just one technical hurdle, for instance, that needs to be overcome. Now, could that be a deal breaker? I don't know. I think the bigger deal breakers come on the political side with the FIA involved, with the ACO. Um, there's some people within the ACO that are, like I said, are pushing for DPI. There's some that are not just because it isn't their idea that that, that was spawned from. So um, there's also some people within IMSA that don't want to be as closely connected to the ACO considering what's happened in the past. So um, I wouldn't say this is a foregone conclusion. That's for sure. But the way I'm reading the tea leaves is that this is the closest we've ever gotten to a potential common platform or shared platform, you'd say, between cars. So um, personally, my fingers are, are double crossed hoping this happens, because if it doesn't, I'm afraid that sports car racing in the top classes isn't going to be what it could be without this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's fascinating. That's that's one side of it. But uh, we all hope that everyone can get together and come up with a solution to the manifold problems that uh, that would be surrounding hyper, uh, hypercar and, and DPI convergence. We will see. You mentioned Ford is a brand that would be right there, ready to jump on, should there be a way of combining or finding a way for the two to, to work together. How close are they, though, with 2022 in mind, even if Hypercar or going to Lamar or whatever is out of the question? We know that they are interested to some degree in the next generation of DPI. How close are we to a decision there? Yeah, I spoke to Mark Rushbrook, the, the global head of Ford Performance Motorsports, um, last week, actually, in the build-up to Petit Lama, and he confirmed that um, they should have a decision by early next year. So that gives them enough time to plan, develop, um, you know, prepare a program should they be able to commit. And like you said, Ryan, I think one of their conditions is that they need that platform to be global, to at least have those cars be able to race at Lama. Um, they might even be in the position to restart a, uh, a top-class WEC program, you know, for, on a full-time basis too with this. So, um, nonetheless, I think a lot of people are sort of waiting to see what happens on Ford. Um, it's still one of the major players that hasn't really come to a decision, um, especially like on the driver front too in America. Um, you look at Joey Hand, Dirk Mueller, Richard Westbrook. As of now, they don't have any full-season drives. Um, Ryan Briscoe is obviously set to go to Wayne Taylor Racing for next year, but these guys are hoping that Ford could potentially maybe come to a commitment in the next couple months. They can find a gap year, find something to do over the next you know 12 months, and then jump right into development in 2021 with the program, and then be back on track um, with a, a top class DPI program. So um, that's just one of the stories from the paddock this past weekend. 
there's a lot of other scenarios I think at play. But um, with Ford, I, I think that it's likely that they will commit, um, but only if it's a global platform. All right. And finally, here in the news section, we talked about it earlier, LMP2, without a doubt, a down year and a disappointing year with only two cars racing on a regular basis in the WeatherTech Championship. But it sounds like there is some momentum behind the class and a chance to see some real significant growth looking ahead to 2020. Yeah. um, Speaking with multiple people over the weekend, um, it seems like we could at least double, if not triple the grid. And and I guess that sounds like a lot, but it's still a a good number. Looking at it right now, I I think we can see between four to six full season entries, if not more, at Daytona, um, which would be incredible considering where we're at right now with just two. Um, We have um, Rick Ware Racing that has purchased the um, the ex-Bar One Motorsports um, um, Riley Mark 30 uh, LMP2 car. I understand they just took delivery of the engine um, they'll be leasing from Gibson over the weekend. Uh, right now, I believe their program is just around the endurance races, but but who knows? They may end up doing some more. Um, we have another team that's set to announce a program around the endurance races next month. Um, they just confirmed purchase of an Orica chassis. And then Orica told me they're in discussions with four other teams, and including one former prototype challenge uh, entrant for next year. Um, so it's looking really good. Also, the prospects of a second PR1 car as well. So when you start putting it all together, um, also uh, Dragon Speed for Daytona and Sebring. So, um, yeah, I, I think that all for whatever reason, LMP2 does seem set to make a rebound. I, I really wouldn't have predicted this in the middle of the year. I, I, I thought that the class might have been dead, but um, there's a lot of factors at play, including the rising cost of GTD um, that really put this as a potential opportunity for teams that, you know, might have less of a budget to go racing. Um, you know, the season next year will be six races for the points, um, seven if you count Daytona, which will be part of the Michelin Endurance Cup, but not the full season LMP2 championship. Um, from what I hear, it puts budgets around one and a half to two million. Um, it's almost double that in GTD right now. So for a, a gentleman driver that wants to go racing in the top series, that's this is your best bang for the buck. Um, there's talk of uh, bronze rated drivers becoming mandatory, uh, uh, one driver per car, a bronze mandate, um, which would probably lead to more gentlemen drivers in the class. So I think IMSA is really listening to the, 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 the competitors or listening to the feedback. Um, next year could be a real uh, increase for, for LMP2, and I'm, I'm personally pretty excited about it. Yeah, that's really great to hear. So hopefully most of those programs, if not all, come to fruition, and we do see a nice bumper crop of LMP2s on the grid next year. Okay, that's it for the news this week. We have a big interview coming up next. The new, newly announced uh, president of IMSUB, John Doonan, who will be taking over at the start of next year, will be joining us next here on Double Stint to talk about that role, his decision to leave Mazda, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, this is Renger van der Zander. You're listening to Sports Car 365 Double Stint Podcast. Earlier today, IMSA announced John Doonan would be taking over the reins as the next president and COO of the sanctioning body looking ahead to 2020, and he's kind enough to join us now on the Double Stint Podcast. First of all, John, a sincere and heartfelt congratulations from all of us at Sports Car 365. 
What has this day been like for you? It has to be equal parts uh, gratifying and a bit surreal, I would suspect. Well, thank you, Ryan and and John and the entire staff. Uh, thrilled to uh, be part of this story. Uh, thrilled that uh, have you guys as friends, but also as as storytellers in uh, in telling the great IMSA brand story. It has been amazing today. It's been a long time coming. Um, couldn't wait for today. Um, such a range of emotions and, and a roller coaster ride. Um, Leaving uh, my post at Mazda was not an easy decision. I dreamed of working for that brand since I was nine years old. Got to to fulfill that boyhood dream. Um, But if there was anything else in the world of motorsport that I would uh, depart Mazda for, uh, it would be this this, uh, position. I've been a fan of IMSA from about that same time, nine years old followed the likes of Jim Downing and Roger Mandeville and Amos Johnson um, and, and thought uh, that, that there was no better platform for endurance sports car racing than IMSA. And lo and behold, uh, God had it in his plans to, uh, to give me this opportunity. Mr. France and the France family, Ed Bennett and Scott Atherton um, have had faith um, that I can um, lead the next uh, 50, cha- 50 year, 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 year chapter and, and start off that way with uh, what is an amazing platform right now. So huge emotions. Uh, today's a great day uh, for myself and my family, and I'm, I'm really excited to get started. I think a great day for IMSA as well, based on the outpouring of supportive messages that we've seen in the last uh, hour and 20 minutes or so since the news became official. (laughs) You mentioned, though, that this is a long time coming, and and in some respects, maybe that's alluding to a life spent in motorsports, but I'm sure this process for both yourself and for the series was not entered into on short notice. When did this begin, and can you take us through the process of first the initial conversations and ultimately the decision that sees you in this new role? Yeah, it was uh, nothing uh, that I saw coming. It was uh, a wonderful phone call that came back in March about the potential for some leadership changes coming down the pike and um, a stop in Daytona for the Motorsports Hall of Fame dinner, which was coupled with a visit with Ed Bennett, uh, with Scott, uh, with senior leaders in NASCAR like Mike Helton and Steve Phelps, um, with Lisa France, uh, with Jim uh, France, and the opportunity to meet people that you've admired for so long, um, ultimately potentially becoming your colleagues. Uh, you know, imagine uh, how amazing um, that opportunity uh, would, would sound and feel. And, you know, we didn't really, out of respect for Scott's um, retirement, out of respect for uh, finishing what uh, I started here at Mazda and, and finishing the season, um, it was, um, it was, it was something we had to sort of keep quiet, uh, for sure, but also, um, put it on a proper timeline to respect everybody's schedules and respect the partnership that the Mazda brand has with IMSA and, um, you know, finish my duties here. And it was a really special, um, joint, um, effort to, uh, have the right messages go out at the right time. And also with major support from Masahiro Moro and the executive team here at Mazda, 
you know, to see one of their own um, launch uh, out of Mazda's headquarters um, into what is arguably um, one of the most exciting uh, opportunities uh, in all of motorsport. And you've had some time, clearly, to think about what that entails. Think about the next phase for IMSA under your leadership. What have you identified as top priorities for you day one when this job begins? Uh, Ed Bennett and I have talked about that. And I think um, I know, uh, fortunately, many of the current partners. But in, in the first hundred days, it's my goal to be able to go out and visit face-to-face with as many of the partners as possible um, to deep deepen the relationship if it's already there or start uh, a fresh relationship, um, understand their objectives, what they're trying to accomplish for their brand, and how uh, myself and the IMSA team, um, which is an amazing staff, what we can do to help them achieve and, and surpass their, their objectives. Um, I clearly have uh, a lot to uh, educate myself on when it comes to um, all the promoters and all the promoter agreements. Um, I've, I have dear friends with several of the promoters uh, already, so I feel like uh, it'll be more about understanding their in, you know, particular event. Um, can't wait to deepen my personal relationships and now uh, professional relationships with the members of the ACO and the FIA and the WEC um, group. Um, and I think that the foundation, uh, certainly on the IMSA side, is all of the teams, the team owners, um, the staff on the teams, the folks that drive trucks, the folks that turn wrenches, um, the race drivers. Uh, again, no many of them. And um, just really uh, deepen all those relationships, understand what is making them tick um, and and how we can continue to earn their investment uh, in uh, the WeatherTech Championship or the Michelin Pilot Challenge or uh, the Lamborghini Trofeo Series or you, you name it. Um, there's so many opportunities uh, for people to grow their careers in sports car racing, no matter what their discipline, whether it's driving or PR or hospitality. And it's my hope, um, much like we've done in, in my previous life, we give um, people the opportunity to grow their careers in, in IMSA's brand of endurance sports car racing. When does this process start? Obviously, Scott has he stated he will be, remain in his current role through the end of the year. For you, still balancing Mazda commitments to some degree, what, what do the next couple of months look like? Well, my first day in Daytona will be next Monday, the 21st. Uh, can't wait for that. Um, be certainly a lot of travel. Uh, we have the Encore event, uh, thanks to our partners at Michelin at Sebring in early November. I uh, have a chance to meet with all the promoters uh, leading up to and uh, surrounding the SEMA show. Um, so um, really uh, keen to, to get going, but it's um, you know, sitting on the runway <laughs> with the engines running, uh, ready to pull back on the stick. We're 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 excited to get started, and um, we're gonna we're gonna get going right away. There's no uh, no time and uh, to, to to rest. I think um, on the Mazda side, um, my hope is is we have the program in a very stable place um, from the grassroots levels all the way up to our DPI program. 
most recently unveiled our TCR customer car offering. So there's there's massive opportunity to uh, to get started right away, and, and I won't be uh, taking any naps anytime soon. Well, you mentioned earlier that leaving Mazda was something that it would have taken a very special opportunity to to even have that come up in your mind, and and clearly this is that opportunity. When you think back on your time with Mazda, what do you hope your legacy is and and the state of the Mazda motorsports operation? Where is that looking towards the future? Um, Again, I, I feel like we've redefined our strategy, so to speak, in recent years. Um, you know, we had a fantastic run with the Monster Road to Indy. Um, but as we sat down with our executive team, we looked at ways that we could refine uh, what we do. And our grassroots program um, and our partnership with the SECA and NASA uh, that exists on the Mazda side is, is really well established. Uh, we have a very loyal customer base there, so that's great. Um, in you know, MX-5 Cup for Mazda has really continued to to grow and prosper, and been a launch pad for driver talent. The TCR car, it's amazing that uh, there'll be a TCR cars uh, on the on the grid at IMSA uh, come January. And then uh, again, the DPI project, uh, what a season we had! And you know, when you when you stop and think about today's news and think about what happened in the summer. Um, it's really been sort of a, a magical uh, year with the success that program has, has now achieved, uh, thanks in, in large part to our friends at Multimatic. Um, it, it's been an amazing year, but I think the program is in a good place. Um, Jonathan Applegate, who's been my, my right-hand teammate, um, plays a key role going forward. There will be an announcement in the coming weeks about uh, a new director of motorsport, which I know that the, the staff and the, the racers and those involved are going to be really pleased with. And um, yeah, I, I feel good. It's it's very difficult to leave. Don't don't get me wrong. What um, you you know what I've done for 17 years, but um, there was only one other thing. And I told this to Masahiro Moro, our CEO, on May 10th when I shared this news with him. I said, Morrison. You know, there's really only one thing I would ever leave Mazda for, and, and this this is the job. And um, to to have it before me now, I am I'm so grateful and so honored, and I I just can't wait to get started in the office. What experiences from your time with Mazda are you going to be drawing from most as you step into this new role? Uh, relatively quickly, not a lot of time to to get used to it with some pretty big decisions coming down the pipe in the near term future. Yeah, uh, fantastic question, Ryan. And you know, from the time I was a little little guy going to the racetrack with my dad, you know, I, I had the opportunity to uh, work in timing and scoring. And my mom was responsible for registration, and my dad was a race steward working on rules and and performance balancing of the day um, and and classifying cars. So I'm so fortunate that I've had this wide range of experiences sort of in the trenches of motorsport that I can understand and appreciate the amazing talent of the IMSA staff and what they do. And then we've had a lot to uh, do relative to corporate partners um, we don't have a massive budget at Mazda Motorsports. We've had to call on corporate partners to help us achieve 
um, what we have uh, relative to the top level uh, programs in, in IMSA. And um, I think from a driver development standpoint, Mazda has tried to be the benchmark. And my hope is, is that um, as I enter the, the IMSA opportunity that we as IMSA can be a destination uh, for top talent, as well as uh, a, a stepping stone and a ladder for people that want to enter uh, uh, the world of sports car racing. And I think um, we can we can be all those things and allow people, uh, no matter what age, to fulfill uh, a motorsports dream. And also, whether it's in PR or hospitality or as a driver, uh, as a team owner, um, IMSA is a, a platform that people can uh, uh, strive for. And then all those different series uh, that, that are uh, in the uh, development side of, of what the IMSA platform is can be a, a stepping stone for um, many, many folks uh, to, to get involved in the sport. Well, to close, I thought we'd just open the floor to you. Is there any message that you would like to convey to fans or stakeholders or whomever, whomever may be listening to this interview as you uh, prepare to embark on the next phase of your career and in the next phase of IMSA? I really appreciate that approach, Ryan. That's, that's fantastic. You know, for the fans uh, and for the audience, um, please know that we want to continue to provide you uh, with the best motorsport, uh, especially endurance sports car racing content uh, that you've ever seen. We appreciate the investment that you make to, to see the IMSA events now, whether that's in person or via television or via the other uh, ways to take in the content on live streaming. Um, please come back and bring friends and family. Um, I want to help identify that next generation of audience, and that's only going to come through uh, the current audience helping us uh, to achieve that. Uh, to the race teams and, and the mechanics and everybody on the teams uh, know that we want your experience as a stakeholder uh, to continue to be positive in IMSA as a place where you uh, realize your investment uh, is going uh, further than you could ever imagine. Uh, for the OEM partners, uh, it's my hope that they realize that sort of one of their own is um, in the IMSA building and that I understand their uh, initiatives and what they're trying to achieve. Um, maybe not specifically brand to brand yet, but I do plan to do my ever best to make sure they're earning the value out of uh, their uh, investment and, and partnership and, and being a corporate partner of IMSA. Um, to the folks at WeatherTech and Michelin, uh, our um, major partners uh, in that regard, uh, as well as NBC, um, they've put IMSA, uh, uh, along with a lot of hard work by the IMSA leadership, on a very firm foundation right now with, with a lot of stability. And, and I just want to uh, continue to work with them um, such that we can maintain what we've done, but uh, take it to another level and engage um, uh, a new audience and, and hope to provide a continued great experience for all the thousands of fans that have come to all the events uh, throughout uh, the last uh, 50 years. John, congratulations once again. Thank you so much for your time on what I know was a busy day for you and looking forward to seeing you in your new role at Daytona, not too much further down the line. I really appreciate it. 
Hey, this is Colin Brown, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. A big thank you to John Doonan for joining us on the show this week, shortly after the news was officially announced. John DeGee's back with me now, and uh, we got a couple things to, to wrap up the show with here, John. First, we have a question that came in from Matt, who wants to know, is there any news of the Corvette C7R being sold to any WEC or Asian Le Mans Series Pro-Am teams looking ahead to 2020? I have not heard anything about that, but apparently one of the Corvettes that was racing on Saturday has gone to a collector, and that same collector, incidentally, has actually purchased both of the um, the core Autosport uh, Nissan DPIs. So I had an interesting conversation with John Bennett about that at the WeatherTech Night of Champions. He said that... Um, those cars won't be. Doesn't look like those those cars will be raced again. But one one will be one will be brought back to the ESM livery, and one will be in Coors livery. I know that doesn't answer your question. Sorry about that. For, sorry for the tangent. But um, I think one of the Corvettes has gone to a collector. Not sure where the other one is. I think Corvette Racing obviously has three chassis, um, but I haven't heard about anybody racing them um, per se. Okay, thank you for the question, and sorry we didn't have a direct answer, but that was interesting. So, uh, thanks for asking, because we wouldn't have learned that otherwise. Finally, let's look ahead to Las Vegas this weekend. It is the season finale for the SRO America Series of Championships, including Blancpain GT World Challenge America, which is set for a couple races on Saturday on the... uh, partial infield road course partial oval uh track there at las vegas what are we expecting to see john it should be a very busy weekend plus of course the global sro banquet on sunday night yeah the gala and in the bellagio on uh, sunday evening i'm sure everybody's looking forward to as well the big question the big i guess the the word you can sort of say going into the weekend is unknown um, this will be the first Roval Circuit SRO America has raced on. Um, the, the track has been recently, well, we actually don't have 100% confirmation if it's been uh, finally homologated. I know there was plans to do it in, during the race week, but teams have been testing over the course of the weekend. Um, there has been talk, you know, some concerns in some areas, obviously. Um, but I think the biggest thing is we just got to get through the weekend and, and see where everything shakes out um, we have 13 cars for blanc pond gt world challenge america um, down on grid size with the allegra motorsports not making the trip again also only one dxdt mercedes but we have um, some interesting drivers returning including ranger vanderzanda making his first start in four years in the series he's paired with martin fuentes um, in his ferrari which has been upgraded to the pro class as a result we also have alessandro balzan who I believe is making his first start um, in, in a, in behind the wheel of a car in close to a year and a half after um, being put on the sidelines due to a, a, a medical procedure that forced him to be on blood thinners. Um, obviously, he was a longtime co-driver with um, Cooper McNeil in the WeatherTech Ferrari. He was replaced by Tony Vlander this year. Um, but um, Balzan will be racing with Brett Curtis, who started the season in um, uh, the real-time racing Acura. Turned out he was a bit too tall for that car. And so he's found um, the uh, Ferrari that's going to be entered by Scuderia Corsa um, this weekend, and they'll be racing in Pro-Am. So there's some excitement there with some new entries in GT3. The championship has already been clinched for Tony Vlander and R. Ferry. Um, Miguel Molina returns to the wheel with uh, Vlander this weekend with R. Ferry. And then we have, the, the obviously, the different GT4 series as well, um, GT4 Sprint. 
There's a three-way battle for the championship there. And then we got the Sprint X races um, alongside the the uh, the West Championship, which will be running with Sprint X to decide their titles as well. So like you said, Ryan, lots of racing over the weekend. Um, going to have an unveil of a new GT4 car by Celine as well. So um, there's going to be plenty of news on and off the track. Yeah, a lot going on. It should make for a fascinating weekend. A lot of unknowns, like you said, and I think there's some apprehension surrounding it uh, for that reason. But anyway, we'll be there on site, of course, to cover all the action at sportscar365.com. That's it for us this week. A big thanks to John Doonan for joining us on the show. Thanks to John DeGeese and Dan Lloyd as well for breaking down Petit Le Mans as well as the latest news of the week. We'd love a rating and a review on iTunes if you have a moment to spare. And also, we'd welcome your questions or comments for next week's show using the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter or by leaving a comment in the comment section from this week's show. That's it for us. Talk to you next week with our next edition of Double Stint. We'll be right back.